Well, hello. I hope you're doing great this weekend. What a week this has been, huh, with weather and all that stuff. And uh, I hope you got plowed out or shoveled out and uh, it wasn't too stressful for you. Hey, let me share with you what I consider to be an amazing uh, statistic. On a typical weekend at Grace Fellowship, between our three active campuses, we typically have over 3,000 people come together to worship the living God. To me, that's amazing because it's not in the Bible belt of Tennessee or Georgia or Alabama. Uh, Rather, we're in the most post-Christian part of our nation. So I believe that what God is doing is truly extraordinary. But sometimes people ask when they observe a growing church, no matter where it is, how large can a church get and still really continue to be effective? Well, I, I think that's a wonderful question. And, and my answer to that is I believe a church can grow as, as large as possible as long as, as long as individual needs are still being met. We're in a series right now called What Makes a Church Special, and we started off by looking at the unchanging message of truth that the church proclaims. That's the foundation of everything we do, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins, he rose again, and he offers us salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That has been at the heart of Grace Fellowship from the very beginning, and that is never going to change. Last weekend, we talked about building meaningful relationships, and we took a special look at the fact that in the church, relationships ought to go deep. They ought to be more than just surface-level trivia. They ought to be more than casual acquaintances. It's through relationships, primarily, that God changes our lives. In fact, as we said, the number one catalyst when people go from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ, it's, it's through a relationship. That's what God uses. But he also uses relationships to help us grow up in Christ as we find men and women who are on the journey with us and they're farther along than we are. And so we all need a Paul, we all need a Barnabas, and we certainly all need a Timothy in our lives. But today, we want to wrap up this series by talking about how needs are met in the church. And I'm absolutely convinced the church can get as large as possible as long as, as long as real needs of individuals are getting met. But if that's going to happen, the average church is going to have to do some pretty significant changing. And I'll explain to you in just a moment what I mean by that. But before we do, I want you to do a little experiment with me, okay? You may have to put your, well, you will have to put your Bible down probably for this or your notes or whatever. I want everybody to participate at all of our campuses, Greenbush and Half Moon and Latham. I want you to get involved here with me for just a moment. I want you, without even thinking much about it, I want you to go ahead and just fold your arms the way you would naturally fold them. Would you do that? And just keep them folded for a moment. Don't even think about it. Just fold them the way you would naturally fold them. Now, without moving your arms, I want you to look down and notice. Don't move your arms yet. Look down and notice which one is on top. Is it your left forearm that you put on top or your right one? Okay. Now, stay with me here. I want you to raise your hand if your right forearm 
is on the top. At all of our campuses, would you raise your hand, please? All right, a lot of hands. Wow. Okay. Now, how many of you would raise your hand if your left forearm was on the top when you naturally folded your hands? Woo! It's just about half. Isn't that interesting? Now, by the way, some of you really felt comfortable doing this. This is kind of your natural posture in church. Move me, pastor. Move me. Yeah, you felt pretty good doing that. It was really comfortable. All right. I want you now, though, to try something with me. Thanks for your participation. I saw almost 100% participation. I want you to do one thing different now. I want you to fold your arms again, but this time I want you to do it just the opposite of what you did. Would you try that? Try to, ooh, doesn't that feel weird? Go ahead and try to do it just, some of you are working hard at this. Wow. Okay, good job. Give yourselves a hand. You did great. You did great. Now, the the point of that little illustration, and thanks for your participation, is that it's kind of uncomfortable to change the way we naturally do things. Please listen closely. I've had the privilege through the years of talking, no exaggeration, to literally tens of thousands of pastors around North America and in some other countries as well. And we've talked about how God grows a church. We've talked about God's design for the local church. And and I've concluded this. I've concluded the average church is not going to grow too much unless two significant paradigm shifts happen. This isn't even in your notes. This is just all foundation for where we're going today. Paradigm shift number one, we're going to have to rely less on clergy. Do you know what clergy are? Clergy are pastors and other religious leaders that, um, you know, have titles, okay? Usually they've been ordained in some special way. We're going to have to rely less on clergy and more on one another for ministry. That's a significant change that has to happen. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Now, there's five leadership roles right there that the Bible says are God's gift to the local church. But here's the tragedy. Through centuries of time, tragically, churches, Christian people have started relying on people with those titles to do all the ministry. Once I was in Kansas City talking to just over a thousand pastors in in a Billy Graham School of Evangelism. The room was jam-packed. It was an exciting environment. We'd been worshiping together. I stood up and delivered a message, and then we had an hour, an entire hour of debriefing. And so I'm up on the platform taking questions, literally, from this crowd, whoever raised their hand, and one pastor from Kansas stood up in the back, and he was just broken. You could tell he was tired. And he said, Pastor, my wife and I and one other person, this man in the church, we do all of the ministry. I said, all of it? He said, no one else is involved. No one else cares. No one else will help. And I think that that is, tragically, it's pretty typical. Somebody said that 80% of the people do only 20% of the work, but 20% do 80%. It's been dubbed the Pareto Principle, originally applied to economics, but it certainly is true in the local church. But tragically, often in churches, it's 
5% of the people do 95% of the work. That must change. No wonder the church is a sleeping giant. If that is going on, the sleeping giant has to wake up and people have to quit relying just on folks with titles to do all of the work. And the second paradigm shift that has to occur, if a church is going to grow, is we is closely related to the first one. We have to start thinking of ourselves as ministers rather than just being the receivers of ministry. We have to start thinking of ourselves as ministers rather than just the receivers of ministry. Now, let me talk to your heart for just a moment. And boy, if you came in today and you just thought you were going to get this wonderful, peaceful, little calm message that wasn't going to ruffle you or challenge you in any way, man, you came on the wrong day, sister. Brother, you picked a bad day. Because this message is going to be challenging to the core. When you got saved, you got ordained. I hope you understood that. When Jesus Christ came and saved your soul, when he removed the penalty of sin and began to change you from the inside out, when he adopted you into his family, he ordained you into the ministry. There are no Christians who are not ministers. But over 2,000 years, what is normal in God's MO has become abnormal in the local church. And again today... It's just a few people, it seems, percentage-wise, who get that. We've got to change that. The Bible meant for every Christian. God's design is for every believer to be involved in meaningful ministry. And that's why our covenant here reflects that. We say that everyone is going to be discovering their spiritual gifts and using them in at least one ministry in the local church. That is so important. To understand, and I want to say to you personally, and I'm saying this because I care, if you found your Christian life to be a little bit disappointing, if you found it to lack the excitement you'd hoped for, it has no electricity, as it were. There are no goosebumps. You're not finding yourself stoked up and excited about getting up every day. I would ask you to look no further than this. Are you involved in ministry? God using you as his instrument to help change people's lives. 58 times in the New Testament, the phrase one another is used. Love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, rebuke one another, be kindly affection to one another, and on and on and on. That's God's plan. That's not some human design. That's what God designed the church to be. So if we can make those paradigm shifts, there's no limit to what God can do. I want that not just for Grace Fellowship. I want that for every local church in the capital region. And the sleeping giant could come alive and begin to kick the devil around a little bit if local churches, if Christians could just change their mindset on this. And understand the answer is not in pastors or people with titles. Oh, they've got a role to play. Thank God he does call leaders to various roles. But we're only there to equip people, Ephesians 4 says, to do the work of the ministry. We're all doing the work of the ministry. And if we can begin to understand, as Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Wow, what a dynamic movement the local church would be.
What a dynamic presence Christians would have wherever they are. I can hardly wait to see what God is going to do as these mindsets begin to shift. Now, the secret of Grace Fellowship is that God has already been doing that through so many of you. You've already made those paradigm shifts. You understand exactly what I'm talking about. And yet there are still hundreds, I believe, where this mind shift needs, mindset shift still needs to happen. So with that as a foundation today, I want us to dive right in. And I want to talk to you about the what, the why, and the how. That's as simple as that. We're going to look at what kind of needs are we trying to meet? Why would we do this anyway? And then we'll finish up quickly by looking at the how. Let's dive in together. I hope you have your Bible open. We're going to look first at Acts chapter 2. That's been our foundational text for the series. And let's dive in right there. What needs are we trying to meet? Let's identify some of those right now. Well, the first one is spiritual needs. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we started in Acts 2, God did something extraordinary when he sent the Holy Spirit in a new way. The Holy Spirit had always been there, (laughs) always working throughout the eons of time. But God fulfilled the prophecies he had given through his prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when he said, I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And through the prophet Joel, when he said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people, on all flesh. And that's exactly what God fulfilled here in Acts 2 at Pentecost. The spirit came not to just go again. The spirit came to indwell them. And as Peter preached that powerful gospel message, remember what happened? They were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 41 told us that 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow, what a start. You talk about meeting spiritual needs, folks. The gospel is designed to meet spiritual needs. But it did not stop there. Last week, we read this passage. Let me read it again. And I want you to notice the positive activities that these early disciples devoted themselves to, and this helped them to grow up in Christ. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church is here to address spiritual needs. And the fundamental need of every person, every man, woman, boy, or girl, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're here to address. It begins with that. But here's what I found strange. Many churches, many leaders say it stops right there. That's all God has called us to do, is simply to preach the gospel. 
It's just about the salvation of a person's soul. That's all it is. I would beg to differ. If you look at the model of the early church, they did a whole lot more than address spiritual needs. Secondly, they spoke and addressed, spoke to and addressed physical needs. If you read on in the book of Acts, you flip over a page or two to Acts chapter 4, you read the following. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, why were they doing this? Because there was a lot of poverty in the first century in Jerusalem. The weather wasn't that great. The crops weren't producing bumper crops. Plus, there had been this massive influx of immigrants from other locations, and many of them had stayed in Jerusalem after the Pentecost experience. That added pressure to the Christians that were there. They needed additional food. They needed additional provisions and places for people to stay and sleep and so on. And so there was an incredible need for people to step up, those who had more, to step up and meet some of these needs. In fact, as you read on in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the church continues to grow because of all this. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says there were 5,000 men. We estimate that that would make the church, at least at this point, 20,000 people. Boy, you talk about church growth. This church is growing at an astronomical rate. But as we turn to chapter 6 of Acts, we see that they ran into a practical problem. Let's begin reading there. Look at what it says. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, they're not being prima donnas there. That's not a supercilious attitude. That's not a better than you attitude. What they're saying is our primary mission as leaders is to preach the word of God and to devote ourselves to prayer. We've got a lot here on our shoulders. We're going to devote ourselves to those things. And then they say in verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. In other words, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. But they weren't devaluing the practical needs. Verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and a bunch of his friends. Okay? All right? And it goes on to read in verse 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Do you see what's happening here? They weren't relying just on these clergy, these people with titles. 
They were training other believers and empowering them to minister to one another. And because they did that, God honored it and the church kept on growing. Now, by God's grace, we've been able to meet physical needs as well. In fact, I'm convinced that that's one of the things that God has really blessed at our Grace Fellowship campuses. A few weeks ago, I read to you a list of things that God has allowed us to address, practical needs, in the last three months. And I was amazed after I read that list on the weekend. I was amazed at the response, overwhelmingly positive. And a number of you, I had at least five or six people say to me, I had no idea we were meeting those kind of needs. I just read a list of all the various physical needs that we had addressed in a benevolent kind of way. People were astounded. Many of you had no idea that that was going on. Now, the reason we don't talk about that all the time is because, to me, it sounds like tooting your own horn. To me, it sounds like, oh, you know, people are going to misunderstand if we're drawing attention to that. But we are committed to meeting practical, physical needs. I had Pastor Greg Ballard of our Greenbush campus put together just a little list of some of the things that the people of that campus have been doing even before they launched. Greenbush is only about two weeks old. But they've been coming together, being the church of God, far before they ever were even able to have worship services. So every third Saturday of the month, they have what they call service Saturdays, all right? And people come together for about four hours on a Saturday morning to do all kinds of projects. Here are a few of them they do. The East Greenbush Public Library, they complete tasks like collection management, reshelving, moving, sorting books, painting, cleaning out and managing plant beds, helping with their book sale events. They get nothing for this. They're just there to be a blessing to the community. That's awesome. They've also partnered with the Greenbush YMCA, helped with various projects to improve their building, like painting, gardening, kids' camp preparations, just to name a few. Some months they come together and do encouraging cards for residents at the Watervliet housing facilities, various missionaries around the world, and others that desperately need encouragement. Most recently, they initiated a relationship with Rosewood Nursing Home. Volunteers are trained uh, to visit, to encourage the residents to share scripture with them, and often they ask for that, to sing with them, to pray with them, to spend time just in conversation and lift the spirits of these people, many of them desperately lonely. Also, there are a number of individuals who have been able to serve by providing general maintenance for folks in need, both indoor and outdoor stuff. And Greg wraps up his report with this. I I thought this was good. I'm going to quote him. What's exciting about these projects is that while none of these jobs is attractive, appealing, or associated with any great need, like a hurricane or a flood or that kind of thing, they are making a lasting impact on the community. Every job is helping someone. And guess what? It's a win-win. Because while they're serving, they're building relationships with one another and having fun. The opportunities are limitless. And just four hours just four hours once a month. Awesome. 
And that is typical of what our Half Moon and Latham campuses have been doing as well. We're committed to meeting physical needs as well as spiritual. Why? Because the Bible told us to. God has instructed us to. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. But there's a third need that we're particularly interested in meeting, and that is emotional needs. Emotional needs. I'm convinced that many, many people desperately need encouragement. In fact, I'd guess that some of you listening to me right now, if we could just be totally honest, vulnerable, let our guard down, you would acknowledge, look, something's going sideways in my life. I got a bad report from the doctor. I'm having some relational challenges. Financially, I need help. You know, there's a legal situation that is just causing stress in our lives. I'm in desperate need of a job. Things aren't going well at work. I've got tension in my neighborhood. The list goes on and on and on. We need encouragement. In fact, I'm convinced if Satan has a toolbox, if Satan has a toolbox filled with things like, you know, fear and all kinds of physical problems and all kinds of challenges, I'm convinced that discouragement is his sharpest most used tool. Just discouragement. Now again, I would say to you, many of you automatically think of turning to a person with a title. And I understand that. You've been trained that way perhaps for decades. And thankfully, sometimes pastors can provide some help there. Sometimes we have training, special training in that. But I'm absolutely convinced after years in ministry that what most people desperately need is a small group of people who love them and care about them and who are willing to get in the boat with them right in the midst of their discouragement, pray for them, lift their eyes, come alongside them and say, look, God's got something good in store for you. Let's do this journey together. Let's get through this together. And that's what... Most pastors can never do for you unless it's a church of about 50 people. And then sometimes that's possible. All right? So we're interested in meeting needs. Now, let's turn this corner. Why should we try to meet needs? What is our motivation for this? Why are we doing this? Well, quickly, let me give you some reasons. One is obviously to love and care for people. First John really puts it bluntly, doesn't he? Boy, John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And then he says, dear children, that's John's typical term for addressing his believers. He was an old man when God inspired him to write this. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Obviously, We do this because we just want to love and care for people. Another motivation is to glorify Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When we do things, we want God to get the glory, right? 
My goal is to see a church full of people at all of our campuses where folks are living such excellent lives as they go about their daily routine that people would say, wow, I don't know what they're on. I don't, I don't know what is fueling them. I don't know what kind of God they serve, but whatever it is, I want some of that. That is amazing. Debbie and I were recently at a ball game. It was a basketball game. And someone walked up to both of us. She, she saw us standing there and uh, uh, looking for a seat. She walked up and just said hello. And I kind of recognized her face, but I had no idea what her name was. I thought I'd seen her before. And she came up and just gushed with praise and thanks for what Grace Fellowship had meant in her life. I had no idea who this woman was. And I said, well, well I, I really don't know what you mean. T- tell me your story. And she wanted to tell how that some time ago she'd gone through a horrible divorce. She's a single mom and she didn't know where she was going to turn. She was trying to support her children and Grace Fellowship came alongside of her and she started naming people who had come alongside and helped her financially and helped fix her house and helped with her children. And she just could not say enough good things about this church. I don't have a clue who she is. But Debbie and I listened and we thanked her and we And we encouraged her and we said, we're so happy this has happened. And she was giving honor and praise to God, glorifying God. She said, "Uh, I just want you to know God is using this church to make a huge difference. And I'm an example of it. You could have blown me away. And yet that's one of the very things we want to see happen. We want to see people, because of what God's folks do, to give honor and glory to God. Now, this next reason may shock some of you. May shock some of you. We not only do it to care and love people, to glorify Jesus, but we do it for our benefit as well. Now, that may sound self-serving, but hear me out. Matthew 10, Jesus taught, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. In our last series, I talked to you openly about the fact that you can build literally a portfolio in heaven because the Bible says a whole lot about reward. But it's not just reward in heaven. We benefit down here. We get reward down here when we get involved helping other people. Bill Wilson is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one day, he's decided, I want to get sober. I'm going to stop drinking. But after a few days, he realized the temptation was so powerful, he was probably going to succumb. So he went to his friend. He went to a buddy of his who was also an alcoholic, Dr. Bob. And Bill Wilson decided he would help Dr. Bob get sober too. And what he understood, even in those earliest days was that it's in serving others that we ourselves get great benefit. Can I tell you something? We don't serve people because we've got our act all together and we're so strong. We serve other people in part because we're desperately in need ourselves. And it's in serving that we get a whole lot stronger. So how are we going to do this? As we wrap up today, I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking to you about the how. 
We exist to be a people who help address real needs, spiritual, physical, emotional. Why do we do it? Some awesome motivations. We love and care for people. We want Jesus Christ to get honor and glory, but we also, if there's any benefit for us, obviously, we say, bring it on. I need a lot of help, right? And it's in serving that we get stronger. But as we wrap up today, I want to talk about the how. How can we serve others? What is the application of this? And I'm simply going to give you two suggestions. Talking to your heart now, heart to heart. I would suggest that you get involved in some secret deeds of kindness. Really good idea came straight from Jesus. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And in that same section right there, Jesus goes on to say, don't do your praying out in public to be seen by men. Go to your closet. Don't do fasting to be seen by men. Don't do your giving to get praise from men. Now, Jesus prayed in public at times. Jesus healed in public at times and received praise from people for doing that. Jesus received a lavish gift from a woman who broke open an alabaster jar of perfume, pure nard, Mark's gospel tells us. Wow. So was Jesus giving here in Matthew 6, 1, this universal, forever statement, you don't ever serve in public, you don't ever do anything public lest you get praised for it? No. In fact, if you compare that with Matthew 5.16, where it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your... What gives here? Is Jesus contradicting himself in the same sermon? Are we supposed to be public about it or private about it? Are we supposed to do things that get seen or not? What's the difference? I believe the difference is motive. The difference is motive. Jesus was speaking to people who were accustomed to doing their acts of righteousness in order to get credit for it from people and to be perceived as these righteous, holy ones. And he's saying, there's no reward in that. Do it in private, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's nothing wrong with doing a good deed that gets known. The problem is, what is your motive? Is your motive just to get praise from people? I pray it's not. So I would challenge you, do some things that nobody knows about. (laughs) Give some money to someone that you know they're in need and, and do it anonymously. Memorize some scripture and don't tell anybody you did it. Don't quote it to anybody but God. Play with your children and don't remind them, hey, this is daddy's play date with you. I'm spending this time with you. Like, pat me on the back, dear wife, right? Look at how I'm getting involved. Don't do that. Just do it and don't ask for anything in return. 
see somebody along the side of the road and do something to help them. Go visit an Alzheimer's patient. Don't leave your card behind. (laughs) They won't remember who you are. But God sees what you did. Do it expecting nothing, absolutely nothing in return. Go and pick up some litter somewhere and beautify a place, but don't let anybody see you do it. Nothing fights against our fleshly desire to receive the praise of people than doing secret service for someone. I tell you, as they say, this separates the men from the boys. This separates those who are really serious about serving the kingdom from those who are just kind of in it because of guilt or pressure or to try to get praise from people. I would urge you to have some deeds done in secret. And finally, I would urge you to find a way to volunteer in the church, whatever your campus is. Find a ministry in which to get involved. Ephesians 4, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why did God give these leader type people? Next phrase, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do in all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. One of the people I admire most in the world of sports is someone who's retired uh, long uh, ago. His name is uh, David Robinson. He played center for the San Antonio Spurs for his entire NBA career, pro basketball career. He was an NBA All-Star for 10 years in the NBA. He's considered by most who study pro ball, to be one of the greatest centers who ever played the game. Most would put him easily in the top 10 centers who ever played the game. And David Robinson is a fine Christian gentleman. And even though he set all kinds of scoring records and rebounding records and defensive all-star team and all kinds of awards, he had never won a championship. But in 1998, the San Antonio Spurs acquired the rights to another up-and-coming star, a young guy named Tim Duncan. Still playing ball today. Still amazing. And Tim Duncan, Duncan was quickly becoming one of the top five or ten players in the NBA, a true all-star. And David Robinson wanted not just glory for himself. He didn't want to just keep on stacking his own stat sheet, which was Unbelievable. But he wanted to win. He wanted everybody to win. And so he did something that I admire so much. Although he was the leading scorer, he intentionally stopped shooting as much and allowed Tim Duncan to come in, become the leading scorer. He mentored Tim Duncan. He chose to sacrifice his own ego in order to help the whole team 
get better. And an amazing thing happened when David Robinson made that kind of sacrificial commitment of service in 1999. (laughs) The San Antonio Spurs won their first ever NBA championship. Bob Costas, the popular sports commentator, calls him the admirable, admirable, admiral, but Moral, if I can say this, because that's his nickname, the Admiral. And he calls him the Admirable Admiral. He says one time in New York City, Bob Costas says he was in a restaurant. David Robinson was eating in there. It was prior to a game against the Knicks. And he said, normally, New York fans are a little bit hostile and antagonistic toward players of the opposing team. But he said, when David Robinson got up, to walk out, the entire restaurant applauded him. That's the kind of respect they had. Oh, that we could have that kind of mindset. Say, it's not about my ego, it's not about my praise, it's about seeing Jesus Christ glorified and the whole team being the champions God designed us to be. Father, I ask that you would help us today to have that kind of servant's heart, the kind that Jesus had, where he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Help us, Lord, to lay our lives down so that you can make a difference through us in the lives of others. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.